Hey, podcast listeners, Mackenzie here. I wanted to personally thank you for listening and being a part of our community. We couldn't do this show without you. As we shape the next series of the Living Centered Podcast, I wanted to invite you specifically to help us out. We want to hear from you. We're currently in the process of curating a series all around exploring the relationships that make up our lives. Together with various experts, clinicians, and on-site alum, we'll explore the nuances, intricacies, and impact of the relationships within which we all exist. From families of origin to friendships, dating, working relationships, and beyond. We hope to host conversations with guests who bring a definitive and unique perspective. This is where you come in. We want to know your pressing relationship questions. You can submit your questions to podcast at experienceonsite.com and you might just hear an answer on our next series. What happens is that they're living in this state of constant pressure and constant anxiety all the time. So that's another factor that's pretty much there for all teenagers. And then you have everything else. You have a global pandemic, you have, you know, climate change, you have whatever's happening in that teenager's life. But what Heather and I always say about this mental health crisis is because sleep is so foundational and because we can't really truly see what's going on with a teenager mental health wise until we solve sleep. It's like saying, mm -hmm. you know, I'm going to send you to therapy, but you haven't eaten for a week. You know, you wouldn't do that. You wouldn't send your kid to therapy or to group therapy, you know, without having had water for two days, you know. So we really want to help parents understand that Sleep is very fixable, that's the good news. We can't solve climate change in a week, but we can solve sleep really fast in a, you know, in a perfect world. It's very fixable. Welcome to the Living Centered Podcast, where we enter into honest conversations about pursuing a more centered life, rediscovering, reclaiming, and rooting in to who we truly are. I'm your host, Miles Edcox. I'm your host, Lindsay Nobles. I'm your host, Mackenzie Vogt. And I'm your host, Hannah Warren. Hey friends, I'm excited about this week's episode of the Living Center podcast. A few months ago, we polled our audience about topics that you'd like us to explore on upcoming podcast episodes. And overwhelmingly, we heard from you that you wanted to hear from more parenting experts. Today, Lindsay and I sit down with Heather Churgeon and Julie Wright. They are psychotherapists, sleep specialists, and authors of the popular parenting books, The Happy Sleeper, and their new book, Generation Sleepless, Why Tweens and Teens Aren't Sleeping Enough and How We Can Help Them. This was a powerful conversation about the emotional, mental, physical, and social implications of sleep, good and bad. I loved diving deep into how we can create sustainable routines and rhythms for ourselves and the kids and teens in our lives so that we can all truly thrive. So without further ado, let's jump into this conversation. I am so excited to be sitting down today with uh, psychotherapists Heather Turgeon and Julie Wright. Uh, I am mostly excited because when we polled our audience a few months ago, they said they wanted to hear more from experts about parenting. And I was so excited when I ran across your book because I thought it was just fitting a felt need that a lot of us are experiencing now in this season, this new digital season about how do we prioritize sleep 
for teenagers especially, which is what your new book is, but also just for children in general. And as parents of young children, I know that sleep is coveted for Lindsay and I. So welcome to both of you. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, I'd love to hear about how y'all connected. Y'all have um, written several books together and you're both therapists, but love to hear a little bit more about your story and what got y'all collaborating. We are so happy that we met because we met um, probably around 2012 or so, 2011. We met in a, a parenting space where we were each leading parenting classes and we were there at the same time and we kept saying, we should have coffee, we should have coffee. And then finally we had coffee. And from that day forward, we were just like, you know, we just could not stop talking to each other. We we just felt so aligned. And um, I was already really interested in sleep because I was running a Mommy and Me program. And I really felt like there wasn't the right message for the, the moms that I was working with. I felt they were really struggling with, you know, messages of of of, you know, being present and being attuned and being having secure attachment, but they couldn't make that leap to getting out of the way when their babies were capable of sleeping well. So it was either Mm. these sort of polarized camps of like, you know, super, you know, attachment parenting, which we differentiate from actual attachment theory, and then, you know, the benefits of good, healthy sleep. So our goal when we met and what we just sort of nerded out about was really wanting to write a book that made sense scientifically, developmentally. Sleep is developmental, it's normal, it's natural. So is attachment. Attachment is something that happens naturally and they're not antithetical to each other. So we we really got excited when we realized how aligned we were. And we, I mean, we have become the best of friends and. I just have to say, I feel so grateful for for our partnership and our friendship. It's it's amazing. I love that. It sounds like y'all got a lot of creative energy just from the talking and creating together. Back in the day when we were writing The Happy Sleeper, we just had all these sessions where we'd sit in the back of a coffee shop and like draw out. We had a notebook. We'd draw out these diagrams and like illustrations of how we saw solving this dilemma that Julie described of attachment and responsiveness and secure attachment versus sleep, healthy sleep, sleeping through the night. What parents were hearing was like sleep training, you know, and how we were going to solve this, you know, and give parents the win-win. So yeah, all those, all those times where we're brainstorming and drawing things. And that's how we wrote all three of our books. It's so fun. I have a almost 10 month old. And mm, uh, wow. so I care a ton about sort of starting at the beginning with sort of the message that y'all crafted in the happy sleeper. And because it feels like as you're parenting a young child, young children, that there's so many messages of, around sort of how to do it right. And mm. then you're also getting to know these individual unique children. <laughs> so just would love to hear sort of what y'all have learned in your expertise around sleep and, and babies. Yeah, I mean, it's such a good point. Our starting point with any family, no matter what age the baby or child is, is how is everyone sleeping? Are they getting enough sleep? And, and how do they feel about it? You know, if the answers to all of those are, you know, we're getting enough sleep and we'll, we'll help you determine whether you're getting enough sleep or not. <laughs> but also, you know, if everybody feels good about it, we're not here to say there's only one right way to do it. You know, it is true that every family is different, every family culture is different, and every baby or child is different. However, we will also tell 
you that sleep is a hardwired primitive function in the human brain. It's not fancy. It's not, you don't teach or train anyone to do it. It's amazing how pretty much every baby or child we've ever encountered is extremely capable of sleeping well. So though we kind of balance those two things mm-hmm. because a lot of parents come to us very understandably feeling like they have a bad sleeper, you know, and we mm. we really want to help them dispel that notion and understand that um, the reasons why it feels like they have a bad sleeper, you know? Yeah. I think so much about our home, my parenting in the last two years has been surrounding around sleep. It's like, okay, I'm trying to help her have good sleep. I'm trying to recognize how we can all sleep. And I think in that process, I have while prioritizing my daughter's sleep, recognize the ways that I don't prioritize my own sleep or recognizing, hey, she's really grouchy and she's not able to cope. And how can I connect that with her sleep? And then looking back in my own self and saying, oh, when I don't have sleep, then I'm not able to cope. And so I think it's been a really interesting journey as I've, my focus was on her, but it has brought me this, a lot of understanding and connection and attunement to myself. So I love how you're asking, how is everyone sleeping? And how are you feeling about that? I love just starting at that baseline because- that's so important. What happens when we don't sleep? I'd love to hear the science behind that a little yeah, bit. Yeah, and we we love we love to dispel the notion for parents that they're never going to sleep again because I've heard that I hear it from my friends. Like I've heard it from so many people that you know you'll sleep yes. like you you just won't sleep for the next ten years or something like that. And I think that's unfortunate because, like Julie said, sleep is natural. It's a hardwired function. And all babies over the age of five months are capable of sleeping really, really well. And little kids, the issues get trickier, but we also love solving sleep issues for for parents of older kids because they are trickier, but sleep is still such a, you know, kids want to sleep too. Babies and little kids, they want to sleep. We just have to figure out how to, you know, be responsive, but also super clear about our routines and to give them the win-win, which is what we call. So when we don't sleep well, though, it is kind of like our foundation is not as strong. And there are so many things that go on in the brain when we're not sleeping well. One of the things that researchers have figured out more recently is that the brain has a way of cleaning itself during the night. It's a system because we, when mm-hmm. we're awake, we have toxins and waste products that build up during the day, just normal brain activity. And when we fall asleep, there's this kind of washing machine Mm. effect that comes through the brain in these pulses. It's really cool if you see it on brain scans. It's basically fluid washing these toxins away while we sleep. And it only turns on when we sleep. It does not happen during the day. So sleeping sufficiently, one of the things that it does is it it cleans the brain. It literally cleans the brain. So feeling, you know, as a new parent or feeling like anybody who's not sleeping well, like your brain is foggy and you feel kind of underwater. That's, that's part of it. Um, so I think for, you know, for little kids and, and for anyone really that dysregulation, feeling like you don't have enough patience, you don't, you can't pause and, you know, consider, and you don't have your kind of highest, most sophisticated creative brain online you're just more operating from your amygdala from your your fight or flight you know your mm. oper- your body's operating you're getting through the day but you're not operating at your most 
you know, creative and you don't have all your faculties, you don't have your creative problem solving. So there's a lot of emotional dysregulation that happens when you don't sleep well. How much sleep do we need? I mean, I know like they, with babies, they talk about they should be getting, you know, like 12 hours around at night and then naps during the day. And I think that culturally, sometimes sleep can get devalued. Um, they're, yeah. they're such a productivity culture uh, that sometimes like sleep feels like an indulgence. I, I love to sleep and, and don't really feel guilty about it, but I know that some people do. I remember my parents um, got to go to some lectures for the Center of Brain Health in Dallas, and they had some a brain expert come in and they were talking about the power of sleep kind of like you were. And they said that like elite athletes, a lot of times they would increase performance by sleeping versus adding in another workout. And that just was like astounding to me. I was like, that's such a message that I don't think I generally hear in culture around sleep, mm-hmm. you know, that, that that sleep could be productive and could help me enhance or get closer to my goals maybe than doing something that's more directly related to them. Just interesting and mind shifting. So I'd love to know, like, how much sleep should we be getting at different ages, too? Well, one of the analogies that's similar to the one you just made is this idea that if a teenager has a big test the next day, they're better off sticking the book under their pillow and going to sleep than pulling an all-nighter. You know, Mm -hmm. it's a similar idea. And one of the things we really highlighted in Generation Sleepless is the fact that as kids become tweens and then teens, we tend to think of our teenagers as these sort of mini adults who they must not need as much sleep now. They're older and they're tougher and they're resilient and they have all these things that are more important. That's in quotes. It's, you know, they parents are like, oh my God, they have to get into a good college. They have to do all their activities. They have to, you know, fulfill all these requirements that society has constructed for them. So sleep, you know, takes a much lower place on the priority list. And what a lot of parents are just shocked to hear is that teenagers need over nine hours of sleep, ideally, to be in their ideal state of mental and physical health and performance. We define eight hours as adequate for teenagers tweens and teens, because anything below that is where we start to see mental health really deteriorate and other other aspects of physical Mm -hmm. health. But eight is still not close to nine and a quarter. Nine and a quarter is what the sleep scientists have um, extracted because they do these camping studies where they take everything else out of the way and they find out how much their bodies really will take, how much sleep they'll take. And nine and a quarter is that magic number. But our teenagers today, the majority of teenagers only sleep between around six and a half hours. So we have teenagers who are accumulating a sleep debt of close to two to three hours a night. So when you count that up, you know, by school nights, it's it's just, it's a tragic level of sleep mm-hmm. deprivation. And once we started to uncover this, this is what really spurred us to write this book because we didn't realize what a crisis it was. And we, we really wanted to sort of ring the alarm bell, not only to parents and to families, but as you know from reading the book, it's really a call out for societal change because we're looking at schools, we're looking at college admissions and their ridiculous requirements. We're looking at big tech 
and their irresponsible design. So we we really want to start by telling parents we're not, this book is not pointing the finger at you. We do have a lot of help for you because that's what we do. We're really good at helping families even make an incremental change. But um, But we really want to sort of wake up the world to saying our teenagers desperately need our help. And it's not a coincidence that we have this concurrent mental health crisis. It's directly related to this intense sleep deprivation. What are some of those things that parents can do even to like change their teenagers mindset around sleep? Um, I, I know like my teenage nieces love to stay up late, you know, they're, they're always kind of waiting until the last minute to get down homework and things like that. And they themselves probably don't value going to sleep even like I do. <laughs> so what are things that, how can we help shift that at home? Yeah, it's a really good question. And we, when we can catch families around fifth grade or sixth grade, like before kids are getting into middle school, that's where we love to really start to talk about this because that's when the research shows and also just looking around, you can see this happen that parents kind of like start abdicating responsibility for sleep routines around middle school. They're kind of like, well, they've got a phone. They, they're in their room. They're, they should be in charge of when they go to bed. They don't have a bedtime anymore. They've got more homework. And parents very quickly through middle school start to give up, you know, just let go of those healthy sleep habits that I think most parents of elementary schoolers are really good about having a bedtime, having a routine, you know, having a wind down time, taking away technology. And then all of a sudden in middle school, it's like, it just, I, you know, it, it becomes, it's a very slippery slope. Goes out yeah. the window. So we love to catch parents before they've, they've let go of those routines because the research really shows that if you have a bedtime, just the very simple fact of having a bedtime and that there's a study of middle and high schoolers that shows that if kids have a bedtime of 10 p.m. or earlier, they're about 70% less likely to experience depression as kids who have either no bedtime, which is actually a lot of middle and high schoolers, they don't have a bedtime, or a bedtime that's you know midnight or later. So just that simple fact and holding on to those good routines early on is really important. And then as you get, you know, towards the middle of high school or even the beginning of high school, you really have to um, think more about inspiring your own teenager because they need to feel motivated to sleep. You're no longer going to be in, you know, total control over what time they go to bed. A lot of parents of high schoolers go to sleep earlier than their kids do. So you can't, you don't have the same direct control anymore. Yeah. And then it becomes more of a conversation about listening. It's listening to them, listening to what they care about and talking to them about that and weaving in sleep, you know, maybe in an indirect way, like sending them an email or like emailing them an article that is about sports performance and sleep. Because if they're an athlete, you know, the research really mm -hmm. shows that athletes, the number one factor that increases your risk of injury as an athlete is whether or not you sleep eight hours a night. It's not how much you practice. It's not how many sports you play. It's not what stretches you do. It's how many hours do you sleep at night? That's the number one factor. And there's so many high school athletes who get injured on a regular basis because they're 
they're not sleeping enough and they're, you know, exercising so much. So if that, if your athlete is interested in growing, you know, and having more growth hormone because they want to build muscles and they like working out, then tell them that growth hormone is secreted during sleep. But you have to find their, you know, you really, as Mm -hmm. for a teenager, you have to find what they are interested in, not what you think is important. So that's the key as they get older. Your book had so many practical things in it. I loved how the entire second part of the book was just really practical of like, here are conversations you can have. Here are tools that you can equip yourself. And um, it felt a lot of like, okay, how do I take on the ownership and the responsibility for this and partner with my teen? Um, you talked about the parenting fade tool. And that's what I was thinking when you were talking um, and the concept that as you get a teen, you start to draw back, but where are the areas that we draw back too soon? Like you said, with the bedtime and what are the areas that maybe we're holding on to control too much? And how do we find that balance of, I want to have an autonomous teen because they're going to be an adult in three or four years. And I also have to not abdicate my responsibility um, and practice what I preach even around technology. So what does that balance look like and how do you encourage families? Yes. Because that feels a little early for me, but also things I'm thinking about with a two-year-old, well, you know? you know, it's it's a really good way of saying that because the parent fade is this, it's, you imagine a staircase and, you know, as you go up the height of the staircase, your, your child is showing you increased, or it's the other way around. As you go on the flat surface of the step, your child is having an opportunity to show you that they can take on more responsibility. And if they do then you go up to the next step and give them a little more freedom. You, you do it gradually. So over the years, and of course that can start when they're two, because I mean, that's what we really want babies and kids, like Heather said earlier, five months and older to do is take on the responsibility for falling asleep on their own. So it, a lot of it yeah. has to do with um, handing over responsibility to them. And in this case, where we're talking about teen sleep, and especially in the day of technology, it's it's so closely tied to um, really helping them over time to you know, park their devices at, at a certain time, making sure the whole family is doing the same thing. Like you said, like we want parents to yeah. show that this is a family practice and we're practicing what we preach and we're helping you to move into this, um, we call it, you know, creating the sleep bubble. We, we move into evening by dimming the lights in the house, starting to simulate sunset, you know, getting into the habit that you've already hopefully started of parking devices at a certain time. And then we also really like to help families um, put fun and engaging things in after that. So it isn't just about what we're taking away, um, but it's about what Mm. we're adding. Maybe we watch a, you know, a 30 minute TV show from a distance together, you know, as part of our sort of early bedtime routine time, or maybe we walk the dog or finish a baking project or play a card game or something, or, you know, teenagers get to a certain age and they don't want to do any of that with you. We we understand that. Yeah. But it's really helping them understand that there's a rhythm to the evening that is sleep conducive, that our bodies 
really need that time. Matthew Walker, the author of Why We Sleep, has this great analogy for this wind down time and bedtime routine, and he calls it, you know, landing a plane. You know, you you don't land a plane, hopefully, straight down. You've got to you've got to come in for a gradual, smooth landing, and that's what our bodies need to release the chemicals, the melatonin, and other sleepiness chemicals and prepare ourselves to fall asleep easily. So there there are lots and lots of things that we can help teenagers learn, like Heather was saying, by really listening to what they care about and also helping them learn about sleep in, in a way that's not you know, you should go to sleep at the same time every night because that, you know, that's what the book says to do. But just, oh, I read this interesting thing that regularity is as important as duration. Isn't that weird? Like, read this, you know, like just, and just saying like, I need to, I need to pay attention to this too as a parent. So there are lots and lots of things. It's very nuanced and a lot of it has to do with your relationship and how you communicate with your teenager. And um, in my world, I find a lot of my friends, like Heather was saying earlier, that idea of abdicating at what we, we feel like is the young age has a lot to do with the technology and parents find that they are in an argument or a battle with their child every night. And that to me is that turning point where they give up because they say it's not worth it. It's not worth it to have yeah. this acrimonious you know, relationship every evening. And that's where we come in because we're not only sleep specialists, but we're psychotherapists too. So we, we really want to help parents learn how to hold limits with empathy which is what our our second book is all about. And that's what one of the chapters in Generation Sleepless, the one Mm -hmm. that you were alluding to about communicating, is is based on that approach to communicating in difficult moments. Because parents have never had to face such an just Mm -hmm. enormous foe of technology, which just takes all of the other sleep stealers and just runs with them and really does a number on our kids' sleep. It kind of feels like technology is the, like there's a lot of sleep stealers, but then technology, I think even in my own life is is the biggest one. It's like of the pie chart. And even some of the ways that you laid out, like the ALP strategy, the ALP strategy of like attuning and then limit setting and then problem solving. I was reading through it. And I'm like, these are things that I'm doing with my toddler, like I'm trying to attune what she needs, I'm setting limits. And then I'm saying, let's figure this out together. So I just was really interested of how we chart, start to change like the way we're parenting. And there's actually ways that we've been parenting or should have been parenting or could be parenting more effectively all the way through. And so I love that you were eliminating that needs to start earlier. Hey friends, whether for yourself or someone you love, OnSite has the perfect gift this holiday season to help optimize life and build meaning and value back into the human experience. Shop our digital classes and courses at onsiteisonline.com. You'll find courses to help you create sustainable rhythms, harness emotionally smart leadership in your workplace, and build the future you want to live. You'll also find classes on community, emotions, anxiety, trauma, and more. As always, use the code PODCAST for 15% off. Or you can shop our collection of curated emotional wellness resources, gifts, books, and apparel from the Onsite Mercantile at onsiteworkshops.com slash store. Use the code PODCAST for 20% off. Give the gift of emotional wellness this year. 
Everyone on your list will thank you. I do have like a, just a question for myself. Uh, I remember someone here saying about sleep debt because I remember as a teenager, I just binge sleep on the weekends. Like I just was like, okay, or even in college, like this is the day that I'm catching up on sleep and someone saying you never actually, if, you're, if you've got sleep debt, you don't actually get ahead ever again. Like sleeping isn't going to do that for past sleep. It only is going to build. So can you talk about the idea of sleep debt and how maybe we have some misconceptions that we'll just sleep later and that'll catch up? Like, can we actually catch up on sleep? Yeah, I did a talk for a high school um, last week and, and it was a big assembly with all the high schoolers there. And I did a little survey. I said, how many hours do you think high schoolers need? Seven, seven eight, nine and a quarter. And then the last answer was, nah, I'll wake it up. I'll make up for it on the weekend. And so many of them raised their hand for that last one because that's what they're doing. They're sleeping six and a half hours yeah. during the week and they're sleeping 10 hours if they can on the weekends. And the answer is that during the week while you're, while you're sleeping six hours a night or if you're, if you're underslept during the week, your body is in a state of stress. Your body is being taxed and mm. your hormones and your neurochemicals are, are affected. Your physiology is affected during that time that you're sleep deprived. And when you go and sleep 10 hours on the weekend, yes, you're going to feel good when you wake up, but you're not going to, your body still went through that period of stress during the week. So it still is degrading to your health. Mm. So, and then the other thing that happens is when you sleep 10 hours on the weekend, you feel great, but then you've filled way up on sleep and you've kind of thrown your body into a state of what we call social jet lag. So now your wake up time might be 11 a.m. Mm -hmm. And now you're trying to get back into your weekday schedule by going to bed at 10 p.m. on Sunday night. There's no way. You're definitely not going to be able to fall asleep at the right time on Sunday night. So now you've pushed your schedule forward, but you still have to wake up at 6.30 in the morning on, on Monday. So... Sleeping in feels good, but it's a short-term gain and more like a long-term loss, and it doesn't repair the damage from the sleep deprivation. So we try to get you know teenagers to split the difference. So wake up within an hour, maybe max two hours mm -hmm. of their weekday wake-up time so that, yes, they are getting a good night's sleep. Maybe they sleep for nine hours on Saturday, you know, Friday and Saturday night. And then, but they're not sleeping for 12 hours so that they then really throw themselves off for the week. I have, I have a teenager and he sleeps, he has to wake up at 7.15 during the week, um, which is pretty luxurious for a teenager. So many mm -hmm. of them have to wake up earlier, but that means yeah. I wake him up by about 8.30 on, um, on the weekends or maybe nine o'clock. But if I didn't, he would sleep until mm -hmm. probably 11 just because that's the way his body clock is programmed. He would. Yeah. So I'm like kind of, I, I feel like it's kind of like nudging him on the, like keeping him on the track, like nudging him, providing some guardrails for his sleep. So he stays in sync. I, I imagine that uh, he probably doesn't pop out of bed with that wake up. And I, that really is the challenge of sort of that teenager conversation is even remembering myself as a teenager. It was like, there was something that felt so, even now, something that feels so luxurious about sleeping in and you don't want to like think about the the cost of it later. We've talked around the solution, some of the solutions, the practical help for 
sleep and even why it's needed. But I'd love to hear more about sort of the trends that y'all are seeing with teenagers and the mental health issues that are so prevalent. I think societally, we we hear about them. And then if we have teenagers in our families or that we're close to, we know that a lot of them are struggling. But how are y'all seeing that sort of permeate society? And what is the effect of this lack of sleep that we're dealing with and other issues as well, social media and all yeah. there's so many challenges right now. Yeah, it's such a yeah. big question and we have to start really thinking about it. Um, you know, Heather alluded to this, you know, when we don't sleep, you know, there's that, that cleansing flushing of toxin system that doesn't do its thing. And then there's also this idea that our, our executive function, you know, our, our, our middle prefrontal cortex is just not online the way it is when we're well slept. So our ability to do all the things that make us mentally healthy or more likely to be mentally healthy are just not working very well. Our ability to reason, to pause, to to have a positive interpretation of a person's facial expression or what they say, um, our ability to regulate our own emotions, our, our ability to be objective. All of those things go way down when we're underslept. And of course, that's just one facet, but that's always going to be there when we're underslept, right? Then you have, you know, the lives of our kids. They're overscheduled. They have way too much pressure. I was listening to your podcast with the psychotherapist Eric Minton, and he was talking about this idea that in our lives today, we feel like we have to be productive all the time, and we have to feel an anxiety that we have to always be doing things. And if you imagine a teenager's life from the moment they wake up in the morning, everything is structured for them. They're not in charge of school. They're really not in charge of all the things they're trying to do after school so they can show up well on their college applications, which is what we find a lot of teenagers doing, you know, some are really doing something that they enjoy, but they're still in a structured activity. And then they have an unreasonable amount of homework to do. And by the time they get to the point where they are done with all of that, they're, they're so hungry for downtime, for social time, for connecting with their friends. They didn't get to do it in the way that would be so much healthier for them outside, in person, seeing each other's faces. And so what happens is that they're living in this state of constant pressure and constant anxiety all the time. So that's another factor that's pretty much there for all teenagers. And then yeah. you have everything else. You have a global pandemic. You have, you know, climate change. You have whatever's happening in that teenager's life. But what Heather and I always say about this mental health crisis is because sleep is so foundational and because we can't really truly see what's going on with a teenager mental health wise until we solve sleep. It's like saying, mm -hmm. you know, I'm going to send you to therapy, but you haven't eaten for a week. You know, you wouldn't do that. You wouldn't send your kid to therapy or to group therapy, you know, without having had water for two days, you know. So we really want to help parents understand that 
Sleep is very fixable. That's the good news. We can't solve climate change in a week, but we can solve sleep really fast in a, you know, in a perfect world. It's very fixable. Um, so we really want to help schools and colleges and parents and families know that this is a really smart and great and helpful place to start is to really to work on your sleep. And even if you can get your teenager 30 more minutes of sleep a night, that is profound. That's a big, that'll make a big difference in their lives. That's really helpful. Um, I was even thinking about like the hierarchy of needs and how you can't, like it's at the very bottom and we can't reach different levels of optimization without hitting um, that bottom level. And I do think one of the questions I, I wanted to ask is like, what is the difference between a generation ago and a generation now? Um, and you laid out a, a bunch of things, but what are we seeing and how does that correlate even to like the opinion we hold of teens when there are so many pressures that they're facing that we didn't, that we didn't face? Yeah. So what is the difference between those generations and what are some of the things that they're facing that maybe previous generations haven't? Yeah. So we, we slept around an hour, at least an hour more than they do when we were teens. So sleep mm. has been, teenagers have been not sleeping enough for many decades, but in the nineties, let's say they were sleeping almost an hour. Actually, I think they were sleeping more than an hour more than the current teenagers. So their sleep time wow. has gone down. Um, and I think I really think that the other societal factors are technology coming in and just running away with their sleep. You see that when the smartphone became, you know, when when it proliferated teen life or everyone's life, that you see that yeah. in the data that that sleep takes another nosedive. So I think and and mm. the thing is teen uh, technology gets better and better like literally every month, I feel like or <laughs> every week, like there's some new algorithm, there's an optimized, you know, way of keeping us engaged. Technology is just absolutely evolving in a way that's like breathtaking. So we finalized the copy for the book probably a year ago or something like that. And sleep has just, every time I see a new study, sleep has gone down again and it was already at crisis level. So I think that just mm -hmm. the impact, I mean, we always think about how we we evolved as humans outside in nature. When the sun goes down, there's nothing to do. It's dark, you go to sleep. The sun comes up, you wake up. And we're actually evolved as humans to sleep in a more seasonal way. Like in the winter, we sleep a lot more um, because there's more darkness hmm. in the summertime. Like we're very attuned. We're yeah, supposed to sure. be very attuned to nature. And that's why when kids go camping, when they take young adults camping, they'll sleep for like 12 hours sometimes. Um, but we are so far from that in our modern world because of artificial light and now because of technology. Mm -hmm. And um, so I think for all of us, that is the main, that we're completely out of sync with nature. Is, is, and that's a really big problem because our brains don't know why. Like our brains are like, hey, what are you doing? We're supposed to be... Like you're confusing me with all these signals. I don't have enough sunlight during the day. I don't have enough darkness at night. And the brain really, that is, you know, our brains evolved first to detect light. That's like the very first function of the brain, detecting light and darkness. And now we've completely moved away from that. Mm -hmm. So 
one of our concepts in the book is, is paleo sleep. And that's really s- extremely key to improving mm-hmm. sleep is to, to work with darkness and light and really just use the outside as a cue for what you should be doing in your home and what you should do to, as signals to your brain. So waking up in the morning and going outside for five to 30 minutes, getting outdoor sun, and then during the evening, you know, lowering the lights as the sun is going down outside. It's actually pretty simple if you think about connecting yourself to light and dark. And that's all your brain. That's really the main signal to your brain to regulate sleep. I think our modern world has moved so far away from that, that that's, that's one of the biggest impacts. And it really relates to technology and engagement, light and engagement after dark that is so confusing to the teenage brain. Mm. Yeah, that totally makes sense. I'd love to hear more, you know, obviously people now will have your books as a resource, um, both for, you know, younger children and then also for teenagers. If someone are, is like navigating what they would say is like a bad sleeper in their family of any age, I'd love to know more about like how, what does getting professional help look like? And yeah. uh, what's the landscape for that? I just don't know anything about it. Yeah, it's a great question. Heather and I, we have evolved to working with, you know, we started really focusing on babies and then we, you know, the happy sleeper includes children up to about age six. So we have a whole chapter devoted to once they're out of the crib. Um, and then generation sleepless kind of picks up with teens. We don't have the, the middle, the age in between is not exactly covered, although the principles, of course, are still the same. But when people come to us looking for help with sleep, we, depending on the age of the child, you know, they certainly can buy the book and we recommend having, you know, either book as a resource. We have online classes for mm-hmm. young babies sort of in that four to 24 month period. And then two to six year olds, we have online classes for those that really teach parents exactly what to do to achieve independent sleep. Um, And then we also offer sleep consultations. So parents can come to Mm -hmm. us with a child of pretty much any age. And we, we always start by gathering information, finding out how much, you know, what is sleep really looking like? And the thing we're really looking for, whether it's an eight-year-old or a five-month-old, is is this child falling asleep independently? Because if they're not, then they're not going to sleep well throughout the night. So this is not exactly the same for teenagers, although the similarity for teens is if they fall asleep literally on a device or, you know, watching something or talking to a friend they're also likely to wake up during the night and sort of think they need to recreate that to fall asleep. Whereas a baby who's rocked or nursed to sleep when they wake up during the night, which we all do, instead of just seamlessly going back to sleep, they they think they need to recreate how they fell asleep. We call these sleep associations. So mm. this is one of the things that we help parents do. We help them with the optimal timing, we help them with the optimal routines, we help them with the optimal sleep environment, and then we figure out which strategy of, of all of our strategies makes the most sense for their their presentation. That's really helpful. We'll include links to y'all's website um, so that people can engage with y'all in all those different ways. It's really helpful. I'm just so fascinated by it. And I think I'm also fascinated by the lens at which you guys kind of 
look at sleep, both from a sleep expert and the science of it, but then as a psychotherapist, because I think there is some misconceptions around, well, if I don't help my child fall asleep or am I, you know, not caring for them emotionally if I'm not showing up for them in the middle of the night. And so um, I appreciate your perspective on that. What are some of, as we kind of round out, like what are some of those misconceptions that being a psychotherapist helps you address and maybe some of the fears that I wouldn't be a good parent or, you know, like sleep is almost um, something that we're supposed to really, really scaffold. What we want parents to do is find a way to help without overhelping because when you overhelp a baby who's capable of sleeping well, then they begin to think that they can't sleep well and you begin to think that they can't sleep well because you're overhelping them. And so most parents, most parents have a sense when sleep's not going well, they feel like they're trying to help but it's not working. So they're helping and they know they need to they know they need to step out of the way, but they don't know how to do it in a kind way and they don't know how to do it in a way that preserves the relationship and the responsiveness. So what we always help parents do is is get out of the way in a kind and predictable, you know, way. So we don't ever we you know a lot of parents get the advice to shut the door and don't go in till the morning. But then other parents get the advice to let your child come into your bed every single night. Like they need you. They need you. They need, you know, respond, respond. So they're getting these polarized messages and we always want to help parents navigate setting clear limits, having clear routines, not overhelping, but doing it in a way that is extremely attuned and responsive and kind. We're never going to let a child go without a response from the parent. And that really helps people feel like they're protecting their relationship. It makes sense. It feels good, but also everyone is sleeping through the night. <laughs> That's the win-win. Yeah. My uh, 10 month old right now, it's like he'll wake up in the middle of the night and like babble and kind of roll around. He's like doing Olympics in his little crib moving around. But it's just, I like really appreciate like how he can keep himself entertained. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, at some point he rolls over and goes back to sleep and I'm, I, 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 I wake up and I like look at my phone and do all the things I shouldn't do. (laughs) And I'm like, Oh, I need to be, you know, like get more comfortable doing Olympics in my bed and, you know, like, and, just really fighting it until I go to sleep. So I, I, I'm learning from him. I love that you're that you you know hold back and stay curious. You know we we see we understand how like you said sleep feels fragile and it feels like a time when our kids need us. But we one way to think about it is if you continually do something for your child that they're capable of doing themselves, they're getting the message that they're not capable. And that they can't do it on their own. And this actually creates anxiety. It makes them feel needy. It makes them feel incapable. They wake up in the night and they're like, oh my God, I've got to go somehow either go or get them to here because I'm, I, I don't, this is not what I do. I don't do, they don't even think of doing it on their own. So it's very hard for parents to understand And it's just like using ALP to be attuned and empathic, but also hold limits consistently. That's the win-win. And it's that thing we always explain to parents, how if you do hold limits consistently, your child will actually be a lot less anxious. 
it's it's akin to that idea of, of they really know what to expect. They know you're nearby. They know you're going to respond, but they also know you're not going to lie down with them or sit in the room or whatever it is you're doing at the moment that they fall asleep. So, and I think it's related to the technology. Parents feel like they don't want their kid to be mad at them, so they don't take the technology away and they think of their kid as incapable of holding limits around technology, you know? So it's it's really normal to worry that um, your kid needs you and you need to make them happy. And, you know, Heather and I, we are, we're the most gentle, kind people, but we also want to help parents be strong and hold, con- hold consistent limits and know that their children are not going to not love them if they do it in an empathic way. Yeah, it's uh, funny, I definitely had some really painful nights getting there, you know, where I was holding the limits and it was not fun. <laughs> and But I was going and, check, you know, checking on him and, but not picking him up. And, you know, I was just trying to be present, but not over caring. But it, it, I didn't, you know, being a full-time working mother, I just sort of was like, we got to get on a routine. Like I need sleep. He needs sleep. We've got to figure this out. And I'm so glad now that it's like, that he's, I feel like he has found like peace in his crib, you know, mm-hmm. and like it's his safe place and there's joy there. And so it, it feels like it's paid off and I just am grateful. And so thank you for the affirmation that I didn't screw him up. And no, that confidence is such a gift. It's like confidence in your own skin, like peace in your own, like just I'm okay. And I've just even in my own life seen like my child start to say like, I'm sleepy. I'm like, oh, yeah, it's just been, I think, such a beautiful gift for our whole family for that to be a foundation and and it affects everything. And it's just been so really beautiful. So thank you both for the work that you're doing to help uh, families find that peace and that confidence and and learn how to be empathetic in the process. Um, I love that. Uh, We often ask and kind of wind out our interviews by asking people, what is a practice that keeps you individually centered? And so I'd love to hear uh, even in your own lives, like what's something that you do to stay centered? If the answer is sleep, that's great. (laughs) Well, Heather and I are both very good about our own sleep and our own sleep practices. I I'm a I'm a aging ballet dancer. So I go to my classes in New York City and that's my joy and my centeredness and my mind-body therapy. And I also live really close to Central Park. So I take walks in the park and that always centers me and makes me feel peaceful and happy. So those are two things that that I do. I think I I would echo the walking. I live in an area that fortunately has nature and sun and I walk. I try to walk every morning because that's what tells your brain clock that it's day and it helps regulate your sleep too. So I make sure to walk every morning and um, not with technology. Mm, They're really good practices. Well, thank you both uh, for sharing so much with us. We were just so grateful. This conversation. This was great. Thank you so much for having it was us. Really, it was really nice to talk to you. Thank you for listening today and for committing valuable time to share space with these powerful stories. Make sure you hit subscribe to get all of our inspiring conversations with these incredible people delivered directly to you. And if you found this conversation particularly impactful, consider supporting the show by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.
When our emotional health is suffering, many of us begin to feel alone and overwhelmed. If you're in that place right now, we deeply encourage you to ask for help. If OnSite can support you in connecting the dots with one of our programs or other offerings, our admissions team would love to connect with you. Simply call 1-800-341-7432 or visit onsiteworkshops.com.